Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. We want to talk about the third fruit of the Spirit, or the third aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, which is peace. That is something that we all need. Is that not true? I mean, I can tell you I need it, need it desperately. Too much churning going on inside, too much anxiety, too much distress. And it's like, how, how often, how long can you, like, endure that? And then when I think of what Yeshua endured, you know, in the garden with the churning and the uh, anxiety, the distress, that in his prayers he would sweat drops of blood. So you see, anxiety and inner turmoil can take on a very deep and very uh, serious uh, thing in, in our own inner being. So here we're told, as Paul writes in the book of Galatians, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. So let me share a couple of things uh, here. First of all, so uh, first of all, when Paul speaks of the nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, remember it's singular fruit. They're all part of of the Holy Spirit's manifestation of himself in our lives. It isn't like we manifest this fruit or that fruit. It is a whole total thing or nothing, really. But peace completes that first triad. You know, some have divided the fruit of the Spirit into three sections, since there are nine of them. The first having to do with our relationship with God, the second relationship with others, and the third with regard to our inner self and our inner being. But the first, the last of these, love, joy, peace, completes the first triad. It's not unlike what Paul writes in the book of Corinthians when he speaks about faith, hope, and love. In fact, love and love, of course, the self-sacrificing of oneself, but joy and faith go together. Paul writes that way in the book of Romans. You'll see in a moment that when we have trusted in God and by faith he has declared us righteous in him and we are forgiven of our sin, not because we obey the law, but because the Messiah of Israel has fulfilled the law in our behalf. When we exhibit faith, it comes with joy. And indeed, those that have a living, vital, unique relationship with God are those individuals that can experience the greatest joy that we possibly can have because everything is right for all of eternity. You know, that ought to be enough for us to sort of reflect on everything is right for all of eternity. We no longer stand guilty before God. We no longer stand in judgment of what might otherwise happen to us and will happen to many. Remember what Yeshua said, many walk that broad road, few walk the narrow road that can find it. 
So we are ones that have been delivered. And as a result of that, because of faith that God has engendered in our own being, that we would trust in the Lord, we can have the greatest of hope. And because, or the greatest of, of joy. And then because we anticipate, hope is not just wishful thinking. Hope is a certain expectation of what God will do in the future. And so because of this kind of hope, there is peace. We can go on for another day because in the ultimate arrangement of things, for all of eternity, we will be with him. This one day will pass. You look through, and I recently read through the book of Revelation. When you get to the end, this one day will pass. All of the tribulations that are yet to come, all the tribulations that have occurred, and all the tribulations that we are now facing will be in the past for a very long time. A very long time. And when that is put in perspective, that's our hope well, then we really can experience the peace that comes by the Spirit of God in the midst of our greatest challenges and trials. So the fruit of the Spirit is that we can experience peace. Yeshua spoke of love, joy, peace. I found this to be really neat. You know, when you find these little neat kind of things, this is a very neat thing. You know, Paul speaks about the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And here in the Passover discourse, Yeshua himself will speak about love, joy, and peace. So he says, for example, in John chapter 14, verse 27, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives it unto you, I give it unto you. His peace is different than the way that the world gives us peace. See, when others give us peace, it generally in the world is to get something in return. People generally don't give without any expectation of something coming back. And he's saying, no, 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 the peace I give you is not like the way the world gives it to you. There may be similarities between the feeling of peace the world can give us and the feeling of peace we might experience right now, but it's given differently. It's given with no strings attached. But in the world, whenever we give, there's always another price to pay. And even when individuals say, no, don't even think about it, somewhere down the road, it gets thought of but not with the Lord. He will give us a peace with no strings attached, and it is my peace. It's not just some peace. It is the peace of Messiah himself. He speaks about peace. He speaks about love in the very next chapter. He said, abide in my love and I in you. He talks about love, joy, peace. He tells us to abide in his love, walk in his love, rely upon what he has done for us, develop this relationship with him. And in doing so, we will find fullness of joy. Then he says, and my, that my joy may be in you. He speaks of love, joy, and peace, even as Paul speaks of it here among the fruit of the Spirit. And notice this is his joy might be in us so that our joy, he says, might be full. I think that is so neat. His joy is in us, but it's to somehow energize our own joy to make it full. And so this is what we are promised. In fact, if you think about this, this is Messiah's bequeathal, bequeathal, what do you call that? When he, how is it pronounced? Vince, help me out here. Bequeathing? 
<laughs> well, you know what I mean, right? Because I can't hear Vince and his Italian accent gets me. But the, the whole thing is that when a person dies and they leave their will, remember, this is the Passover discourse. Yeshua is going to his death. This is like his will and testimony. And what does he tell us? He's leaving us. He's leaving us his peace. So that says a couple of things. When a person leaves something for you at their death, it isn't just a nice thing to now have. There's something significant about it. Because this is what this individual who cared about you put aside for you. I think about this perhaps as often as Mary Lou, maybe more so sometimes, about what her mom had left for us. Now, she was not a wealthy woman. But she was very much concerned for us. And it was only just recently after, what now, about 13 years after her death, a company got in touch with us and said, hey, we have something here that your mother left for you. 13 years they've been trying to find us. And they didn't have, you know, the name of the children they had was the son, which, and Mary Lou's maiden name, which was black. So how many blacks are there? People with a lot. And then they learned, oh, but wait a minute, Mary Lou married a guy named Derishinsky. How many Derishinskys are there? And they found us. And so I thought I deserved at least 90% of this, you know, of course. They would have had nothing if it wasn't for Derishinsky, you know. But that gift is more than just the gift itself. It makes me think of her mother and what her mother's concerns were. And even now, she's provided for us to some degree 13 years after her death. I think that's something that, you know, we've got to be careful with that little package we received because it's very significant, right? It's very significant. fellow who was one of the most dearest individuals in my life, who taught me how to sail, who was alongside of me during some of the most challenging moments in my life, he left me a couple of things. You know, he said, take whatever you want, whatever, you know, his wife said, Gary, whatever you want. And some of these things are not significant to anyone else. One of them I loaned to Cynthia. And they're these glasses that have no lenses in them. And he attached, he made these himself. He was like a Renaissance guy. And he attached these like rods to them with little magnifying glasses. And when he used to work on his watches or work on little things, and they were really small, he put on these frames and he put the magnifying glass. And if he had two of them, so it would really, you know, uh, magnify whatever he was working on. And I, well, ask Cynthia after, but yes, you you could borrow them. And... They're the most weird, awkward-looking things. To me, I love them. I love them because it's not the thing. It's the person that speaks to me through that thing. The Lord says his last words, my peace I'm giving to you. What that means is I have a responsibility to experience it. That's what he's left for me. And while there are times when I sort of... um, You know, I become a martyr or something like that. And I think, I'm just going to wallow in my grief. I have to remember, but the Lord has bequeathed, bequeathed, given to me upon his death, his peace. I need to pursue it at all costs. 
And so here, peace is found. And this is another interesting thing. I didn't know this until I started looking at all these books. Every one of the books of the Brit Hadashah mentions peace at the front end or the back end, with the exception of James and 1 John. Is that kind of cool? You know, of course, Paul's always saying grace and peace. So that was an easy one. But all throughout, either it closes the letters are closed with peace or they're opened with peace. And the connection with peace and joy, as I said before, is not haphazard. Look what Paul writes. Since we have been justified, there it is by faith. And look what he says. We also rejoice in God. Typo, excuse me. We also rejoice in God through our Messiah. Is that kind of cool? Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God, and we also rejoice in God through Yeshua because of what he gave us. Peace and joy go together. Love, joy, peace. And I thought that was kind of a neat thing to take, to take note of. Both, and by the way, both the Hebrew and Greek words for peace, shalom and irene, you know the woman's name Irene, that's based on the Greek word for peace. And, but it means the same thing, to be complete, to be sound, to be well, to be whole. And that's why it's a greeting. You know, we say shalom, Shabbat shalom. May you be well, may you be full, may you be whole. But, you know, it's used that way in the Bible, too. Some may not have realized that. But there's a greeting in which shalom is uttered there in Genesis and, of course, in Luke. When the Lord appears to the disciples, he says, shalom aleichem. Peace be unto you. And it's found also as a goodbye because you say goodbye. May you go in peace. May you be well. May the rest of your day be a good one. May the rest of your life be a good one. It's found that way in 1 Samuel. It also refers to the cessation of war. It's used that way in Joshua. It's also used, Isaiah 54.10 is a really interesting passage because it speaks of one's friendship with God is a state of being at peace with God. We become the friend of God by virtue of the peace that we experience. And peace, by the way, is to be characteristic of our lives. Yeshua himself said, blessed are the peacemakers. You cannot be a peacemaker unless you're at peace with yourself. And so here in 1 Corinthians, it says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Aim for it. Doesn't always happen. But aim for it. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. In other words, be in unity. With one another. When there's a need for comfort, lift up one another. When there's a need to bear a burden, bear that burden together. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Look at this. Live in peace. That's another way of saying, may your life be characterized by peace. When people see you, they should see this is a person of peace. Now, of course, I was raised in the 60s and I thought I was a person of peace. There you go. I thought I was a person of peace. But not so. But if we are ones that are characterized by peace, we live to be peacemakers, then the God of love and peace will be with us. Isn't that what we want? Well, there's the way to have God with you. And that is by being peace, being peaceful and be seeking peace. But it's, sometimes it's very hard to live in peace, isn't it? There's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, just look up the newspaper. Mary Lou is now at a point where I'm not listening to the news. It's just too overwhelming, too disturbing, and too uh, wretched out there that I want to look at this stuff. And I don't blame her. But when you think about what's going on there, all you need, what comes to my mind almost immediately, ISIS, right? And not just because of what's going on in the Middle East and Syria, but did you know? I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. Ron, you may have a better number. 
But if I'm not mistaken, over 300,000 or 400,000 people have been killed in Syria since the civil war. I mean, since the civil strife. Over 400,000 people. We lost 500. We had, what, 500,000 men in Vietnam. We lost 50,000. They, in Vietnam, about 50,000. There, they've already lost over 400,000. We lost 600,000 men in the civil war over a five-year conflict. That's both north and south. They already have over 400,000 deaths in Syria. I don't know what you do with that. When you look at what's gone on with the uh, trafficking of young girls, when you see how, how, and just read, I mean, maybe you've read this, but, you know, ISIS just beheaded women for the first time. I mean, this is becoming a very violent, cruel, despicable world. Yeshua told us this would be the case. It's hard to live at peace when you've got to face those kinds of things. And we even have talked about what's going on in our own lives. Right? We just talk about one thing, and that's enough. What about the racial tension in this country? I mean, I didn't live, well, I was born before civil rights in 68. But growing up, I did not experience much racial tension in the community I lived in. In fact, I never experienced anti-Semitism until I became a believer and I was in a church. It's the first time I experienced it. And I know everybody's experiences are different. But the racial tension of blacks and whites in this country is unbelievable to me. I don't get it. But that's the world we live in. There's hard challenges. The conflicts, the internal conflicts, the conflicts in relationships, I don't get it. The the conflicts I've had here are the most intense I've ever had in my 40-some-odd years of ministry. I don't get this. But that's what it is. Trials and tribulations and challenges. But that's that's why it is his peace that he's to give us. Yeshua's peace can sustain us, is the first point, in times of trouble. Here's an interesting thing I learned. Look at John chapter 14. You may have your Bibles open. Look at the very first verse. It says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and bring you unto myself, that where I am you may be also. Look how it starts. Let not your hearts be troubled. Here's something I learned for the first time. In chapter 14, verse 27, he says, The peace I live with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I never saw that connection before until I started preparing for this message. Verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Verse 27, again, he repeats, let not your heart be troubled. Why? Because our hearts are going to be troubled. And what do we need to deal with the disturbances in our hearts? We need the peace of the Spirit. We need the peace of God. And note how often Yeshua tells his disciples he's going away. That's one of the reasons why they are disturbed. That's why he's telling them, look, don't let your hearts be troubled. What do they have to worry about? The Messiah of Israel is right with them. He's going away. He's leaving them. And he's told them this repeatedly. I started reading the passage just looking for it. Listen to this. In verse 2, I go to prepare a place for you. Where are you going? Why are you leaving us? Why can't you prepare the place and stay with us? 
Why can't you prepare it right here? He goes on to say, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again. Whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean you're going and preparing? Stay and prepare. He says, you know the way to where I am going. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. Oh, what do you mean as orphans? All of a sudden now, I've got to worry about you not being around. You're leaving. He says, the world will see me no more. You're not just going away, away. You're like going away, away, way away. Because now no, not even the world is going to see you. He says, but I'm leaving a peace with you. I'm not even going to be here. But I'm leaving something else. He says, you heard me say to you, I'm going away. He said, I'm going to the Father. That's really problematic because we know the Father's in heaven. That means you're going way away from us. But he also said to them in the very same verses, not only am I going away, but I'm also going to be with you. Look what he says. I'll come again. That where I am, you can be. He says, I'll come to you. He says, you will see me. This is very confusing, is it not? You're going away and I'm going to see you. You're coming and we'll be together. And I'm in the Father, you and me, and I and you. What? <laughs> you know, what are you doing? I'll, I will love him and manifest myself to him. I'll show myself to him. So he says, I'm going and yet I'm showing. And then he says, we will come to him and we'll make our home with him. Let not your heart be troubled. Well, I'm telling you, it wasn't troubled until you just started all this stuff. And then he says, I'll come to you. I just want you to see why were the disciples struggling so? And the reason the disciples don't need to be troubled is because Yeshua is going to leave his peace with him. He's leaving it as a bequest. Bequest. There we go. Now that I can see it. But consider the trouble the disciples were facing. Number one, Messiah was taken from them and he was going to be taken in a violent way. He said, I'm going to be crucified. That's tough. I mean, you, you, they knew what crucifixion was. They saw it on their roadways all the time. And he said, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. He said more, but they heard that much. They didn't hear very much, but I will rise the third day. But they heard... He's going to die a violent death. And not only this, but the disciples themselves were vulnerable. If our Messiah, our Master, our Lord is going to be taken from us violently, what's going to happen to us? We're vulnerable too. We could be arrested. And in fact, they almost were. If it wasn't for Yeshua, who in the Garden of Gethsemane said, who do you seek? We seek Yeshua. Well, here I am. Let the others go. Otherwise, they may have taken them all. So why were they troubled? They were in a violent context. And it would take a supernatural, miraculous peace to sustain them during this time of distress and anxiety. And in the Gospels, we don't see it. But the book of Acts, we see the peace that they finally experience. It takes a little time, but they get there. They experience a peace with God. Paul talks about there, we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God. When we come to accept Yeshua as Messiah, we have peace with God. We're no longer enemies of God. We're now his children. We can cry out, Abba, Father. They experience that, but they also experience the peace of God. That's God's peace that can sustain us through times of trials and heartaches and anxiety and distress. And in fact, we're told that if we bring all of our needs or supplications by prayer, leave them with the Lord, then and the peace of God will guard our hearts. The peace of God will protect us from the anxiety and the distress. That's the promise. That's what the scripture is saying. 
Our problem is like the disciples giving it and leaving it there. I remember years and years ago, just as I'm saying this, that in this church where I was early believer, there was, they set up in the sanctuary a cross. And we all wrote down on, our, on a piece of paper our sins, you know, our needs. And we'd come up one by one and we'd put them by there and we'd leave them there. It's an illustration. Leave them with the Lord. Don't put it down there and then pick it back up and take it. No, no, just leave it there with him. Knowing that we're forgiven of all of that stuff. Knowing that the Lord will empower us to get through whatever we're getting through. He will guard our hearts. In fact, this is what kept Yeshua going. Here's some things I began to think about. What was it that enabled Yeshua to have that peace? Number one, he knew the Father like no one else, and he trusted him. Right? He said, should I not, not do what the Father has called me to do, he says? Should I turn my back? I came into this world to do the will of the one who sent me. He had such a knowledge of God that he was in control. That's the point, that he could trust him even the point of death. It's a peace that was independent of his circumstances. He says, my peace I give to you, independent of what you're going through, to sustain you through what you're going through, is what he says. And that's what sustained him. The peace of God was with him. Think about this. On the cross, in the midst of all the pain and anguish he was experiencing, he could say, Father, forgive them. Why? Because he knew God's heart. And he knew God was in control. And he knew the peace of God despite what he was enduring at the time. So Yeshua's peace can sustain us in trouble, but it can also sustain us when he's absent. The disciples ought to have rejoiced when he said, I go to the Father. Did you think about that? He said, they went to, I'm going to leave you, and they get all disturbed. But they ought to have rejoiced for two reasons. Number one, it was better for Yeshua to go to the Father. We usually think, Lord, no, just stay here with me, stay here with me. But it was better for him to go. Why? Because he never was separated from the Father. He never experienced alienation from the Father. He never had taken on human characteristics until the incarnation. It created a distance of sorts from the Father. And now he was going to go back to the Father and be reunited in the way that he was prior to the incarnation. They ought to have rejoiced in that. That's where you're originally from. That's what Philippians chapter 2 is all about. Though he took the form of a servant and he became a man and he suffered and died, but then he would be exalted and he'd be acknowledged as the Lord, as Paul speaks about it. Well, they ought to have rejoiced and said, yes, you're the living God of the universe. You came to provide, and you're going to, with the Father, that's, that's where you belong. That's where you ought to be. Not only this, not only this, but it was better for the disciples that he goes. He said it was better because now that Yeshua is with the Father, think of the things that would benefit them. Now, for the first time, he can take on his ministry as the great high priest. And always make intercession for us. Couldn't do that before. But now he can as our great high priest. Now he can give us of his spirit so that he might indwell us. That would not have happened before. He said, unless I go, the comforter, the parakletos, the one called alongside to help, to be our advocate, cannot otherwise come. It's better for you that I go. 
it's better for me that I go. And so Yeshua says, now I have told you before this takes place, before I leave, look at this verse, so that when it takes place, this is the phrase that strikes me, you may believe. Isn't that kind of cool? He says, when I go and when I leave, I'm telling you this, that when you see it, you will believe. Now, they already believe in him to be the Messiah. So what does he mean? Your faith will grow. Your faith will be enhanced. Your faith will mature. That's what he says is going to happen. I'm telling you when it happens so that when it happens, your faith will not merely be a mustard seed kind of faith, but it's going to grow. So look what happens. In the Messiah's absence, that is what will result in the maturing of our faith. That's what happens to you and I as well. You and I have the Spirit of God to lead us. It it forces us to grow in our faith and in our trust. Because we don't have Yeshua here to say, well, just tell me, should I or shouldn't I? So it forces them in that way. And mature is characterized. I want you to catch this in two ways here. First of all, to rejoice in Messiah's finished work. The focus is on what Messiah has accomplished. That's why we want to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. A mature faith comes by understanding what he's done for us. Because once we understand it, not just on a, on a surface level, but where it grips our heart and causes us to act differently, enables us to grow in a way that we might not otherwise grow. He tells us that a mature faith is characterized by walking in the Spirit, living in the Spirit, who would be given. That's how our faith grows. He must leave that we would learn to trust the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the truths of God and to rest in the finished work of Messiah. Everything's got to come back to what Messiah has done and the giving of the Spirit to us presently. More often than not, we try to unravel things. We try to reason through things. Yeshua is telling us, look, always have first and foremost in your mind what. I have accomplished what I finished. Let that be a motivator in all that you think and all that you do and the choices you make. Consider the Spirit of God in leading you and directing you and guiding you. Our our tendency is to doubt he's doing that. Yeshua had no doubts and it led to the cross. He said, in this world you will have tribulation. Why do we think the leading of the Spirit will lead us out of tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. If he's overcome the world, he's overcoming the world through us as well. And the leading of the Spirit is not going to be to avoid. It's going to be to confront and to challenge and to change and whereby we grow. That's what happens with the disciples. Think they speak with boldness. You think they wanted to get up in the, in, the, in the temple compound where the Jewish people are gathered on Pentecost, on Shavuot, one of these pilgrimage festivals. Jerusalem is swelled with hundreds of thousands of people. Do you think they wanted to get up and to proclaim their faith in Messiah, the one who was just crucified, the one who's been rejected? It was the Spirit of God that took hold of them, that propelled them into the arena. And in doing so, they spoke boldly of their faith. And the result was many were saved. But the result was also they became marked individuals. Only after the Spirit comes to the disciples do they grow in their faith and do they share their faith. It's only after. 
And Yeshua's peace not only can sustain us when he's absent, it can sustain us when we're attacked by the evil one. Look what he says in chapter 14, verse 27. He says, the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. I thought that was a funny expression. He has no claim on me. Well, we know who the ruler of the world is. That is the evil one. That is Satan. And we know what it means that he is coming. He was already in the world, right? Because he had already been tempting and testing uh, or tempting, luring Yeshua to sin. But what he means is he's going to now enter Judas locally and use Judas to betray him. The evil one is coming. It is now that he is now going to lead Judas to betray me. But look at this. This did not trouble Yeshua. In fact, he says to him, what you must do, do quickly. He instructs him to do just what Satan is telling him to do. Why? Because he had peace with God. Now, notice why. He knew the evil one had no claim on him. No claim because he was sinless. So it doesn't matter what he does to him. As he stands before the Father, he stands guiltless. And you know what's neat about that? That's exactly the case with you and I. Satan can throw his most fiery darts against us. But the fact of the matter is we can have peace because he has no claim on us. Now, he has every right to have a claim on us because we are sinners in thought, word, and deed. But he no longer can have a claim because we have an advocate. He's been telling us this. He is an advocate, and he is sending another advocate like himself. We have an advocate who stands alongside of us that says, all of that, he says to the Father, all that Satan says in accusation of my child may very well be true. But I have taken on his transgressions. He has no claim on you or I either. So it doesn't matter what he does to us. Because it ultimately can have no lasting impact. And not only this, he had peace because he knew the father was in control. He knew that his father was in control of all things. So how can we experience Messiah's peace as we bring this to a close? First of all, we need to be followers of Yeshua. You cannot have the peace of God unless you have peace with God. And the way to have peace with God is by acknowledging Yeshua as the Prince of Peace, the one who has taken upon himself our sin and enables us to stand forgiven before the Father. So it all starts and ends with Yeshua. We need to be a follower of him. Secondly, we have to grow in our knowledge of God. Yeshua knew God. He knew he was in control. Do you ever say God's not in control? If you do, you don't know God. You don't know him as well as he wants you to know him. Because he wants you to know he's always in control of your life, even when it seems to be very much out of control. And the only way we'll know he's in control is if we absorb his word. That means we need to keep reflecting on it. We need to memorize. We need to store up God's word in our hearts. We need to listen to it. We need to read it. We need to get it however we can. Because that's the only way we will know God. We know God through his word. And therefore, if we're going to have the knowledge of God, that means we have to be in his word day and night as often as we can so that we will be ones who experience peace. And the peace comes 
when we find comfort in him. Thirdly, thirdly, we have to battle every temptation. We have to battle every temptation is not sin. Temptation is an attempt by the evil one to get us to sin. So we need to battle it. And we need to battle it with number two, the word of God. That's what Yeshua does. It is written. It is written. It is written. And therefore, we need to have the word of God in order to battle temptation. When we fall prey to temptation, we lose peace. Because when you fall prey to temptation, you fall into sin. And that's what we need to avoid. We cannot do it perfectly. Not this side of heaven. But we continue to battle it and we can continue to triumph over it moment by moment. We need to endure trials of various kinds. James says this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter trials of various kinds. All kinds. Because they are doing a work. God is using it to do a work. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, all things work together for good that lead us to be conformed into the image of his son. The things may be bad. But God, in his miraculous ways, can take bad things and use them to work something very good in our lives. We need to fight unbelief, the unwillingness to accept God's word as it is presented to us. All things work together for good. I don't believe that. That's what we have to fight. You have to fight the tendency to allow the flesh not to believe. And that's why we always need to come to God in faith. Just like the disciples said, Lord, help my unbelief. That's why we need to ask the Lord, enable my belief to be even as small as a mustard seed. But take whatever it takes to grow my faith that I would fight unbelief. And so the Lord has to do a work in us to help us believe him. And that means we have to trust the Lord. That is the finality, the foundation block for peace is the trusting of God. And scripture says this over and over. Our tendency is to focus on the chaos, focus on the disappointments, focus on the challenges. But our focus needs to be on him. Yeshua had his eyes on the Lord. He lifts up his his face to heaven. And he says, Father, forgive them. He's not looking at, the, at these nails through his hands. He's not looking at the soldiers around him. He's looking at his father. And he says, forgive them of what they've done. Hebrews says, look unto Yeshua, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Peter says, cast your anxieties on him. Look to him. Because he cares for you. And that wonderful verse that's very pertinent to this whole issue of peace is Isaiah. You, O Lord, keep that one in perfect peace whose mind, there's the knowledge of God, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. Trust in the Lord, Isaiah says, forever. For the Lord is an everlasting rock. Is that not a great passage? Oh, my goodness. I mean, we've heard it many, many times, but trust in the Lord forever. It reminds me, Yeshua says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, build your house on the rock so that when the winds and storms blow, the foundation holds true. You know, I I haven't told this story very much in all of my life. But it just dawned on me as I look at this, the everlasting rock, and I think about the Sermon on the Mount. When I was a very young believer, 
in that first church that led me to faith and I, in which I found I was led to faith. And I don't remember exactly when. Maybe I was 17, 18. It was early on. I'll never forget this, but I don't talk much about it. But there was a time, I don't know, what will I refer to it as? A dream? I, was, I don't I even remember if I was sleeping or not as I think back. Was it a dream? Was it a vision? Was it merely an imagination? I don't really know. But there was a moment where I can tell you that there was a time that I, I don't mean a time in history, a time in my thoughts or whatever it was, that there I was. I used to have long hair, like almost you know, down my back, right? And there I was in a white robe. And I was standing on this rock. And the winds began to storm and to blow. And the water began to churn and churn. And I remember looking into the storm and yet just standing as strong as I ever could stand. You know, and I I can remember that moment. And I knew that I was standing on the Lord who could sustain me. No matter what the storm might be that would blow against me or rage against me. But if I took my feet off or my eyes away from the rock, then I knew that I began to slip and I began to get unsteady and I began to get fearful. I don't know, maybe I had that image in my mind because I had just read of the time when Peter walked on the water. And as long as he listened to the voice of Yeshua that said, come on out here. And as long as he kept his eyes on the Lord, he was okay. But when he thought about the wind and when he thought about the water, he began to fall. And even then, he cries out to the Lord. And the Lord says, well, didn't I tell you? Sorry, see ya. You know, he reaches down, he lifts him up. And he says, you're going to do better one day. But this is the first step you've taken. And there's going to be many more. And you won't sink the next time. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. You are our peace. And your spirit provides such peace. For the spirit manifests the very character and qualities of God himself. As we're praying, if the ushers can come forward. And we pray, Father, that even in these moments, as we prepare our hearts to observe, to observe the Lord's Supper. The reason why we can have peace, the reason why your spirit can now come is because you have given your life a ransom for us. So in these moments, Lord, as we reflect on the broken matzah that represents the broken bread, as we think about the juice that represents your shed blood, we pray, Lord, you would help us Help us, Lord, fill us with your spirit, infuse us with your spirit, that we would experience the peace of your holy self. We've invited you into our lives. We have peace with you. May we experience your peace that passes all understanding, that we might be peacemakers even in a very violent, cruel world. And despite the distresses and anxieties we may experience in our lives, may our attention be on you the rock of our salvation. So, Lord, we come, and as we come, we confess our sin, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If there's anyone who doesn't know you as Savior, I pray, Lord, that they might confess their sin of unbelief in you, that you would forgive us of, that they might then partake of these elements in a fresh, new, vital way. Lord, guide us now. Enable us to reflect and to meditate on who you are and what you have done and the peace that passes all understanding that is ours in you. Guide us now as we receive these elements, we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.